This episode of What Are You Making Me Watch will contain spoilers for episode seven of Band of Brothers, The Breaking Point. Now I've given you that information, you can make your own decisions. Hello, I'm Paul Kirkley. And I'm Hannah Dunleavy. You're listening to What Are You Making Me Watch? And we're discussing the Band of Brothers episode Breaking Point. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? (laughs) it just. And it is ominous. It's a tough watch, isn't it? It is. I, I think it's the best one. And we'll also be talking about lions led by uh, an absent donkey. <laughs> <laughs> also, I have contributions from old faithfuls, although they're not old, James Holland and Matthew Leach. But they are faithful, aren't they? They are. Never let us down. Here we are, episode seven, The Breaking Point. <sighs> and has there ever been a more aptly named hour of television? No, I'm broken. <laughs> Easy Company are hunkered down in foxholes in the woods surrounding the town of Foy, getting the bejesus shelled out of them on what appears to be a constant basis. Chekhov's Luger finally fires, killing Hubler, the first name on a massive butcher's bill in this episode. Skip Mock and Alex Penkala are killed by a single shell. Joe Toy and Bill Garnier lose a leg apiece on the same patch of ground, the sight of which finally tips Buck Compton over the edge. And countless Easy Company are killed and injured in the disastrous assault on the town of Foy. And just when it seems that all hope is lost, it literally leaps through an explosion in the shape of Ronald Spears, who relieves Dyke of duty leads by way of example in a way those words don't quite do justice to, and rounds it all off by promoting the episode's narrator and metaphorical cuddler-in-chief, Donnie Wahlberg's Carwood Lipton. And I'm just going to say it, one of the best hours of TV HBO has ever made. I've been Hannah Dunleavy. Good night. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I only had to watch it, not live through it. And even that, I needed a cuddle at the end of it. And it's quite something, isn't it? I thought I might start with... The talking heads, again, the real men of Easy Company, because yeah. one of them makes a point that you have repeatedly made through this, and I haven't bitten that because I knew that it was coming that they make this point themselves. And that is the point that you don't always get to stop and help people in these times of crisis yes, and how yeah. it really weighs on you. And I think that's really true because you get this ridiculous thing in, in fiction where there's a massive fight and somebody dies or there's a fire and somebody dies or there's whatever threat. And they all get time to stop fighting the enemy or the fire and sit around in a circle and watch this person die. And it's ridiculous. And suddenly the people, the zombies or the the Germans or whatever, that were just just about to break through, suddenly they're a lot further back and everybody's got a bit of time for this gentle moment and yeah yeah it just doesn't happen and like I say you've repeatedly said it and it is backed up here yeah that's not what life's like and it's certainly not what war's like is it you just you just have to keep going and yeah and and he does as the veteran points that out as you say and I thought there's another bit where one of the veterans says sort of quiet understatement said that these events caused, quote, a lot of trouble in later life. That's yeah. kind of as, as demonstrative as he gets about, um, you know, talking about what is clearly kind of PTSD um, syndromes, isn't it? In yeah. The early bits of this episode, so those those talking heads, they really remind me 
of something I saw the great Robert Duvall say in an interview. And he was asked why he didn't cry much. And I think the implication was that it was some sort of generational thing that men of his generation didn't cry. Yeah. Not in interviews, in acting, in films. In acting, yeah. yeah. And he said, no, it's not that at all. He said, it's just, personally, I think watching someone cry is upsetting, but watching someone trying not to cry is heartbreaking. Yeah, and I think that, that is a fantastic point, and I think it really is evident in those. Those men are, they actually distort their faces in parts to try and hold yes, it in. Exactly. And it's really powerful to watch, I think. Yeah, really powerful. Yes, and uh, yeah, there's a, they they say a lot more by saying very little sometimes, don't they? Mm. Yeah. So where where do you want to start? Which which piece of horror do you, do, you, do you want to start with? Well, shall we start with Dyke? Yeah. Non-storm yeah. in Norman. Talk about lions led by a donkey. Yeah. Where the donkey has left. The donkey's gone off to to make a phone call. Yeah, I'll go um, for help. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, one of them says he wasn't... Uh, Lipton says he wasn't a bad leader because he made bad decisions. He was a bad leader because he made no decisions. He's an empty uniform. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think we've all worked for a few empty uniforms, haven't we? That's the third time that piece of advice has been given sort of to me. My dad used to say that all the time. There's no such thing as bad decisions, only decisions <laughs> and yeah. that turn out to be bad. And yeah. in the rather brilliant... Touching the Void. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh my God, have you not seen that? It's tremendous. Brilliant documentary about what happens when Joe Simpson and Simon Yates try and climb a mountain and it all goes very, very badly wrong. And in it, Joe Simpson, again, is doing it in a talking head style way and he is down at the bottom of a ravine with a broken leg and the wire's been cut, the rope's been cut, so he's down there by himself and there is no hope. And he says the key to that moments like that in life is to keep making decisions. Doesn't matter if they're good decisions or bad decisions. It's no decisions that kill you. So yeah, this is again. That seems to be a fairly solid piece of life advice. I I have tried to take it on board generally, and just think, okay, what can I do? And it's better to do something than to sit and do nothing. He keeps uh, coming up with euphemisms, doesn't he? Like, um, like I got to go talk to the regiment, (laughs) (laughs) which I might try using. Uh, if if like, someone asks me something, I don't know the answer. I'll be like, I've just, I've just got to go talk to the regiment. <laughs> <laughs> I give it five minutes. I've just been talking to the regiment, yeah. um, and also his excruciating attempts at small talk, which is highly yeah. relatable to some terrible bosses who can't do that sort of thing. And he, he where he's literally going. So, wh- where are you from? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, at least he doesn't talk about the weather because that would basically be cold again yeah, it's fucking freezing, isn't it? <laughs> it's freezing. Yeah. but as you say it's a happy ending well in a way it, it's interesting isn't it because we're meant he's obviously presented in some ways as the villain of the piece and mm. yeah i couldn't help thinking well probably that would be me i'd be that guy you'd be what guy dyke like, like dyke yeah not knowing what to do to kind of not make him a bad person it just makes him a completely unsuitable leader doesn't it yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lipton puts up a kind of spirited defence of him because he has to. Yeah, yeah, for morale. Yeah, for morale in this, in which he says, you know, who could lead us? We've all been together. He's new, etc., etc. So there are some mitigating factors. But, yeah, for the most part, he's just not up to the job. And what's so interesting about the thing about making decisions is 
Winters tortures himself, absolutely tortures himself about who he would put in charge if he was able to do this, but then he isn't able to do this. But the second that he is able to do it, he makes probably the best decision that he makes in the war, and he makes it in seconds. Yeah. And he just says, Spears, come and do this. Yeah, And Spears and makes all the decisions, all of the decisions, just charges in and just... Literally charges in, just runs in on his own. Yeah, like I say, through an explosion, <laughs> which is just yeah. glorious. And then he says, I'm taking over. And it's just, it's a, it's a real cheer, way line, <laughs> I'm taking over, is incredible. And all of the stuff, because Spears previously presented kind of as a baddie, you know, or certainly as a shadowy, potentially bad, dark yeah. person, suddenly is just the hero of the moment. But I'm confused. When they're talking about the legendary terrible things he's supposed to have done, and then he kind of suggests that he lets that mythology ride. But the thing about shooting the prisoners of war, we saw that, didn't we? That actually happened. No, we heard it. Right, okay. We heard we heard gunfire, but we never actually saw what happened. Ah, so it's extrapolated. Yes. Okay. And then we enough. see we do see it replayed about four or five times, but it's only it goes along when they're discussing it, it goes along with the stories. Right, okay, yeah. Yeah. So it's point of views. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we don't actually see it. I mean I to be honest, I don't know if they are true or not. I've yeah. never really bothered Googling it. But but yeah, part of the enigma, isn't it? It is part of the enigma. But again, it's suddenly you see a slight flash of the the other side of his personality, which is going to emerge, which is that he is so focused and single minded that it kind of makes him slightly. It's got kind of a a sort of an ethereal air to him, an otherworldly air to him, like he's not really paying attention of what's going on around mm, him. And you see yeah. that first flash when Donnie Wahlberg looks round a corner and gets hit. Oh yeah, in the face, right? And he doesn't even react to it. Just no, doesn't just, react. Doesn't say you're shot in the face. No, nothing. Spears just like get on with it. Come on, <laughs> he doesn't have the the gentle touch, but no. that's not what they need in this because they have the gentle touch from Donnie Wahlberg. And he is like. Uh, just shot in the face? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. Carry on. So, this yeah. episode, written by Graham Yost, directed by David Frankel. David Frankel went on to direct a lot of films, including mm. things like The Devil Wears Prada. So, not really my wheelhouse. What Graham Yost has gone on to do, very much my wheelhouse, made a lot of really great telly, including Justified and The Americans. And he... Oh, put, Hannah, tell you that. Yeah, he puts... <laughs> oh, my God, The Americans is incredible. He puts a voiceover on this. And I'm thinking you are probably very grateful to him for that. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're back in the Wonder Years territory. <laughs> but also, you're associating names with faces, that people's names are being really... Yes, repeated. because he says them out loud, yeah. for Christ's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... Yeah, and he's, it's like, it's like yeah, he's saying who got, who got killed in the foxhole. He tells you. I didn't have to go on Wikipedia. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I thought that was great. I want more of that. More of that from uh, Donnie. There is a... Actually, stop and talk about Donnie Wahlberg, because Donnie Wahlberg is incredibly good in this, which is something that I wouldn't necessarily have expected given his sort of background in acting. Yeah, and then, and, what's, and what happened to him after this? Because I would... I suppose, this may be unfair, but we would tend to see him as very much the Danny Minogue of that sibling partnership, mm, wouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So what, why is that? 
I don't know. I don't. I don't really no. know what Danny Wahlberg does now. No. To be honest, he's got an awful lot of followers on Twitter, so he must do something. <laughs> yes. But I don't really know what he does. I know you're not a big fan of Mark Wahlberg or New Kids on the Block, but he, yeah, given his views, he's great in this, isn't he? He's yeah. Terrific. Yeah, really good. There's a great bit at the end where Spears is telling Lipton how all along, you know, they've they've had a commander there all along making the decisions, and you know. And uh, he's just like looking at it really blankly, isn't yeah. he? And he's like, you don't know what I'm talking about. Do you? I'm talking about you. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 That. But just mentioning the director as you, or the direction as you did, uh, we, we, we talk a lot, obviously, on the podcast about the characters and the story. Um, but it is worth reiterating occasionally how exceptionally well made this mm. is, isn't it? Because uh, yeah, David Frankel, the director, just just the way that that he covered that forest literally exploding around them in a barrage attack, just this terrifying firestorm, and it's easy to take for granted with the way film and television is made these days. But it's it's incredibly well made and terrifyingly made, isn't it? Yeah, the way they do that. yeah, really immersive. You're right in there. Um, it's just so impressive. Now, we talked about Chekhov's Luger oh, and sad, sad times when Hubler shoots himself. Yeah. But let's get to the second big death scene that happens in this, in which they do deploy quite a clever rug pull. Mm. But I'm not entirely sure if you would have noticed it because you're not very good at spotting who people are. But it sets up the death of Muck and Pinkala earlier on when Joe Toy returns and they are talking through the replacement, how everybody has been injured. And they say, George Luz yes. has never been shot. And then, moments later, Luz finds himself stuck outside of a foxhole on exactly. his own. Exactly, crawling and, towards it. And you, are and you just... think, can he make it? Can he make it? Exactly. Yes, and, and, and it's not him. Yeah. And then it's them in the foxhole. Yeah, I thought that was really, um, yeah, really. I mean, hesitate to say the word clever if it's yeah. if it's based on true story, but yes, it is. It absolutely was a little bit of misdirection, wasn't it? And, then, and the, just the fact that they just went again so quickly, just killed in the foxhole like that, is just yeah, really shocking, really shocking. And Joe Toy, of course. So as soon as he checked himself out of the aid station and came back to the front line. Again, you're thinking, hang on a minute, this this isn't going to end yeah. well, is it? We can get on to Joe Toy because I have a lot to say on him, but now might be a place to do a little stop because Joe Toy, when he first comes out of the aid station, is mouthing off about how they didn't need saving by Patton. Oh, yeah. And Patton obviously believed he did. Joe Toy mm. and Dick Winters disagree. I asked James Holland who of them was correct. I fall in favour of the 101st, but I think what's interesting about it, it, you know, you can't really separate the two in many ways. The, the point about the uh, the Ardennes offensive, the Battle of the Bold, why it doesn't work is because the Americans hold on to those nodal points. That's what the French don't do in 1940. Mm. An army like the German army can only thrive if it has its arteries, you know, and that means roads, railways, crossroads, bridges over key rivers, all that sort of stuff. These are those nodal points I'm talking about. And you have to take those because you can't just maraud across country, particularly not in winter. 
So the key thing is, is you know, and everything is about timetable. It's all about doing it quickly. It's about get, getting to this point by this date, this point by this date. So in 1940, the Germans have to get to the River Meuse by in three days and have to be across in four. And they do it. There's a similar timetable for the Battle of the Bulge, and they just don't come close to it. And the reason they don't come close to it is because, whether it be Bastogne or whether it be Saint-Vit, the Americans hold on to these key points, these key crossing points and crossroads, these key nodal points, far too long. You can't just isolate these places. You've got to turn and deal with them. And to turn and deal with them, suddenly get you get into this attritional fighting, which slows you down, breaks up your whole logistic supply, and, and your whole kind of momentum of, you know, of advance just completely dries up. And that's what happens. So it's not just Bastogne. Bastogne is the southern bit. Germans are attacking with a two-army thrust. So there's a northern Waffen-SS army, and then there's a southern Panzer army. And Bastogne is key... What what the Americans do, what the 101st Airborne uh, are able to do in Bastogne, which is an absolute confluence of roads and crossroads and all the rest of it, is they hold it. Uh, and by the time the Patton's Third Army kind of um, reinforced them and arrived from the south, it's already, you know, the Germans have already lost. Mm-hmm. What Patton's arrival does is accelerate the, America, the, the German defeat. But it doesn't, you know, the, the damage was already done. And actually similar operations are happening in the north, uh, and also around some bits and things which I've already mentioned. Although some bit ultimately does fall, it's held long enough to to make the crucial difference. So I would also say I don't think it's just about the hundred first airborne either. It's, a, it's about the collective effort. Yeah. There's some really interesting stuff in um, Ken Burns's documentary uh, yes. about the war, about the Herkin Forest, and mm-hmm. you know just the absolute battering they were taking there. Well, absolutely, and this is why Market Garden was worth the punt. Yeah. Because if market go- if you can't get in through that back door up in the northern part of Germany where there is no west wall and where the Rhine is really small, really narrow, what's your alternative? Your alternative is the broad front policy, which mm-hmm. is adopted by the Americans and the British, particularly the Americans in favour of the broad front policy. And it takes them till March the following year to kind of break through that. It's not till the third week of March that they get across the Rhine. So it sort of proves why Market Garden was worth a crack yeah you know that that is what you're facing and, and it's not just the west wall and it's not just the terrible terrain and the hurtgen forest and the hills of the ardennes and all the rest of it it's also the fact that it's winter and there was this weird thing that in the 1940s winters were particularly bad you know and and it's not just in northwest europe it's also in southern europe as well like italy and elsewhere you know the winters were appalling they were freezing cold and typically what happened was the rain would come very very early sort of end of september rain throughout october most of november then in december january february it would freeze there'd be snow absolutely everywhere and then it would rain again and there was a reason why in days of yore you used to have campaigning seasons and those campaigning seasons used to be the summer and that's because it's drier you know where you can move around more easily well that's absolutely the case in modern war as well where you've got lots of track vehicles and particularly the allies who are so completely dependent on mechanization the more mechanization you have The more it rains, the more the two don't go together. Let's go back to Joe Toy and Bill Garnier, which is, to me, like the absolute just me of the... And me, it kind of feels like the wrong word to use in this scenario of this episode, because we lose three relatively big characters in 30 seconds, and it is just horrible. And I, I have to say... Kurt Acevedo and Frank John Hughes are both 
tremendous throughout this, but both just tremendous in this scene. If we start with Frank John Hughes, who Frank John Hughes and Bill Garnier, of all of the pairings in this, seem to be the pair that actually were genuinely mates and sort of made a friendship. And Bill Garnier was one of the last of them to die. He didn't die till about, I think, about 2014. So went on to live a very, very, very full life with one leg. Right. But I think it's a, it's a tremendous performance. So much so that this scene is the only time that I will ever accept someone talking about themselves in the third person when he says they got old Bill Garnier this time. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Kurt Acevedo, again, amazing. And I was actually talking to my brother about this last night, about how there are certain expressions that get used sort of in popular culture. Not film quotes, but I mean, not ordinary life expressions that you would use, but that they become, to me, it's permanently associated with a certain person's voice. For example, the expression, what a bitch. People can say what a bitch, but I will hear what a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It is always in Jessica Stevenson's voice. The words, (laughs) I've got to get up, are always, always, always in Kurt Acevedo's voice because that is just horrible. I've got to get up. I've got to get up. When he looks up... And just sees the leg in the, and the fact that it's in the snow as well. And then there's a there's a kind of a high kind of crane shot of him laying in the snow, just surround you know in in kind of surrounded by blood, almost like you know like a blood angel, snow angel. It's just like you know it's simultaneously it's kind of cinematic, but also horrible, isn't it? Yeah, especially yeah. when the pair of them are. are... Uh, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And knocked yes. out together. It just it looks it, it looks so bad. You immediately understand that this is the end of Buck. You don't yes. even need to be told, because uh, Lars comes over, and he and the look that he does when he just looks at the leg and and Donnie Wilbur's like, look at me, look at me, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. How, how is Buck? And you just know that even though he says Buck's fine, you know that yeah, he's yeah. gone. When I asked James Holland about who his favourite character was, he said Spears, but he also said the man who drops the helmet, which is something we've been seeing in the credits the whole way through it. Right, like Compton's yeah. dropping of the helmet, and it happens yeah. here. And really great acting with with no words, just just that kind of haunted stare. Yeah, and the red and the red eyes. It's really powerful. Yeah, even in the heat of all the kind of tragedy and bloodshed and limbs flying off. Uh, Joe Toy was still like, what's a guy got to do to get killed around here? Yeah. <laughs> still got that uh, Because he has been hit repeatedly. <laughs> I think of yeah. all of them, he's the one that's been hit the most. He got hit twice in one day in episode yeah. two. He's got trench foot, whatever was wrong with his arm. That we, I, we did, that didn't even get covered, did it? What was wrong with his arm? No, and, no and exactly. That's now just, his yeah. leg. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, as, as someone says in this episode, getting shot in the ass is almost like a kind of com- <laughs> company uh, motto. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. Frank Picanti's turn to get shot in the ass in this episode. That's, that's yeah. right, yeah, yeah, someone has to get shot in the ass. Because you asked early days whether it was something to do with... Um, Forrest Gump. With Forrest Gump, <laughs> but of course, it's, it's, it's apparently just... I don't know how common it is in war, but it was apparently very common in Easy Company to get... To get fucked up the ass in the words of Popeye. He said, yes, kind of an easy company tradition, he says, getting shot shot in the ass. Yeah. Yeah, but the good news is Lipton's nuts are fine because we were worried about them slightly earlier on, weren't we? Yeah. I really, really liked the sequence where they spent the night in the convent with the choir singing, which was a beautiful uh, kind of change of pace 
after the relentlessness of the episode, I felt like he really needed that kind of decompression time. And it's a you know lovely bit of respite. I mean, and the fact that it also turns out to be a false dawn because they don't realise it, but they're going, going to be sent straight back to the line, but they don't know that yet. So they at least have this this night that's uh, peace of mind. And then there's just the amazing bit where it, the victims just sort of fade out from the pews, which is very different to Band of Brothers House style, I would say, because mm. it doesn't normally do melodrama like that um but i think it's well earned because because it doesn't do it all the time i thought it's such a beautifully uh poignant moment just these you know these lives just blinking out in front of us i thought um, it was really really powerful yeah agreed and a big day for for woman watch big, wow so what in the choir yeah a whole choir a whole choir's a worth choir, of women of nuns. Choir, of and nuns. nuns and nuns yeah yeah no, and nuns have got to be worth two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Surely. Definitely. Yeah. Nun watch. Definitely. Um, there's a scene in which, now I just kind of briefly talked about spaced obliquely, there's a scene in which Donnie Wahlberg goes to basically say, I don't think Dyke's up to the job. He is Cassandra in that moment. He knows it's going to go wrong, and it really does. Damien Lewis looks a bit like that episode of Spaced where they're both sitting frozen on the doorstep. He looks oh, so yeah. fucking cold in that so episode. So cold? Yeah. yeah. So absolutely yes, he's freezing literally, cold. Lips are blue. He's shivering. Now, I can't believe we've got this far, mate, without you telling your Damien Lewis story. Oh, God. The Damien Lewis story. Well, maybe this this was my dyke moment. and, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, no, it's not my dyke moment because this wasn't me making no decisions. This was me making bad decisions. Right. Being a terrible leader because, yes, one of my, a newspaper that we, uh, of, of our common acquaintance that we used to work on. And um, when I was uh, heading up the features department and one of my writers, a friend of ours, Nick, um, was on the phone to Damien Lewis. And uh, so I thought I'd do some proper helicopter management and kind of slipped him a note and said, ask him about being a Bond villain, which Nick Julie did. And then uh, Damien Lewis said, that wasn't him, that was Toby Stevens, described by Damien Lewis as a different ginger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I thought was lovely. So, And he said he had been asked that before, but I think that's probably just Damien Lewis being very nice, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh so lo- lovely Damien Lewis wasn't a Bond villain, that was... In his own words, a different ginger. This episode included the use of the word furlough, yes. which uh, I thought was only invented in 2020, but no, they were using it in, during the war. Yes, breaking points. So I feel like the title obviously suggests that this is the point where Easy Company comes closest to breaking. Mm. But hopefully also a turning point, because it is by now, it's 1945. Mm. It's January 1945. Now, I'm no James Holland, Mm. but even I know that 1945 was not a great year for Hitler. So so surely the tide has got to be turning, has it, in episode eight? If you mean our Band of Brothers more regularly on the winning side, then absolutely yes. Right. Yes. Okay. I don't know what else you would mean by that. So if (laughs) if you did mean something else by that, you'll have to explain it to me. Yes. As in, did things become a bit, a bit 
less we're frantic. winning the bloody war that's what i mean come on lads yes yes yeah and yeah. things become less frantic you will see more we i think we have peak death to, yeah right that's what you're Did asking things become less exploding yes yeah yes. i mean it's interesting with the breaking point because it does seem that the breaking point would refer to buck compton if you're going to put it to, yeah. to anyone because he does actually say although it like marked a low point in the war most of them rode it out in some yeah. way and managed to but from going back to the the points at the start by by burying it in a place that 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 it couldn't stay buried 50 odd years um yeah yeah still struggling to talk about it now and and the sheer physical toll of, the stat at the end was that 145 Men went into Belgium and they were down to 63 by the end yeah. of that episode. So just human cost, absolutely huge, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them got killed in that. Yeah. You yes. could see them getting just... I mean, Dyke did, like I say, get a lot of people killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find it interesting, and I, I don't I don't kind of want to read about it because I, I, I'm trying not to watch this as a as a sort of a historically accurate thing and we're watching yeah. it as a television program but it sort of does beg the question there are two big baddies in this as such there are there is Sobel at the start and yeah. there is Dyke here I do wonder what their families make of their representations yeah. in this because I'm sure that is accurate. That did happen. Spears did take over at that moment. Yeah. They did lose a lot of people there. As the question of what they make of it, perhaps they just avoid it. But yeah, also as well because we don't. Uh, it's not entirely clear whether Dyke. What were Dyke's options? If you've be, if you know that you've been promoted over your head, and that you're not really up to the job, what, what are your options in that situation? Can you? Can you go to your um, CO and say, I'm not really up to this? Maybe you could. I don't know. Maybe that's what you should have done. But I wonder if the system really allows for that or whether it's just like you've got the job, get on with it. Well, interestingly, I had that conversation with Matthew Leach, didn't didn't I? Because his family is army. Mm, And he said he was kind of expected to go into it, but he knew it wasn't for him. So I suppose people with a less less self-confidence or forceful personality than he has might not have the confidence to say to dad or to uncle or to granddad yeah. or, or godfather whoever's got them in this position yeah. I, I, I should have been a I should have been a journalist I should have been an actor I should have been something else do you know what I mean exactly Rather than, this but, I mean once me. you're in, once you're in the in the theatre of war that you know and you, that's when you really find out that you're not up to it I wonder what your options are if you could say actually can I can I go back be a spud basher in catering there is some talk of demotion, some of it voluntary, some of it not coming up. Um, yeah, so we can maybe okay. talk about that in a in another episode. I suppose it's very easy to be unsympathetic to his character because of the mm. results of his indecision and his bad choices or no yeah. choices. He doesn't. He just sits, doesn't he? And again, I don't know. I probably wouldn't run towards that shit <laughs> I either. Know. Yeah, if, if, if you had a load of uh, soldiers looking at you going... Should we run into that gunfire? I, I suspect I'd be a bit like, uh, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, coming up, episode eight, The Patrol. 
And yes, so, there is there is less. This is we we've hit peak carnage, I think. Everybody gets um, to keep keep their legs on in this one. Yes, I think so. <laughs> okay, right. I, I think so. A couple more famous <laughs> okay. faces on the way as well. Oh, great! Yeah, one incredibly famous face on the way. Are you going to agree with me that this is the best episode? Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, Yes, it's powerful and it's it's beautiful. I mean, it's brilliantly made. It's it's terrifying. It reinforces the idea that um, I this watching it um, in my living room is the closest I ever want to come to the field of combat. What do you think about the statement that it's one of the best hours of TV that HBO has ever made? It's not as good as Succession, but it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking when I said that, what are the best hours of television? You've probably never seen any of these. And I'm talking about HBO, HBO. HBO. Well, I would go with uh, Succession. Uh, Any particular episode of Succession? Probably the one where Kendall is trying to stage a boardroom coup and gets stuck in a traffic jam (laughs) and is literally walking down the road. I love that. That one's fantastic. Yeah. My favourite one is the safe room. Episode. <laughs> is there another safe? Room? Yeah, written by the yeah. glorious Georgia Pritchett, who's yeah. so much is going on in that episode. Firstly, there's the whole what's going on in the in the safe room. Secondly, there's the the subplot of what's going on between Jerry and Roman suddenly like bubbles up in that episode, and then Connor has to go to that funeral and give a neutral eulogy, which is just oh, hilarious, God, yeah. just yeah. totally hilarious. Yeah. yeah. The first series of True Detective. Yeah, that's got some pretty yeah. strong hours in it. I mean, you never watched The Sopranos, so I'm just going to say it now. The Pine Barrens. Tell them that. The Pine Barrens <laughs> episode of The Sopranos, where Paulie Walnuts and Christopher get lost in a wood, is genuinely fucking incredible. There's a couple of Game of Thrones episodes that I think are very good. Oh, the Blackwater yeah. episode of that yeah. is an absolute banger, and, obviously. Um, the, the one where. Tyrion is defending himself and just basically lays open the whole, their hypocrisy of the Lannisters. That's incredible. Yeah. Incredible hour of telly. Yeah. Um, The recent, uh, we're just listing HBO triumphs now. At the end of episode five of Mayor of Easttown, where Thingy got shot. Right. That was... Yeah, I wasn't an enormous fan of the Mayor of Easttown, I have to say. I thought it was kind of Happy Valley, but not quite as funny. Very Happy Valley. Yeah. Very Happy Valley. And um, oh, and um, because we are a TV podcast, we have to mention The Wire. Otherwise, we'd be yep. taken off air. Yeah, and I would say The Wire, it's the episode in which... This is riddled with spoilers, this episode. Guys. <laughs> it's the episode in which they double-cross each other. Um, oh, Avon yeah. and Stringer, that's an amazing episode. Also the final episode of Series 4. And also the uh, famous scene where the only word is motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Omar and Court, which I watched a lot yeah, after yeah. Michael K. Williams died the other day. I will say also, got to mention, almost anything from the second series of The Leftovers or almost anything from the second series of Deadwood. I think you could pick any of those and say it's like an incredibly strong hour of television. Yeah, they've still got it, haven't they? Yeah. The HBO. They're, they're still they're still handing the likes of Netflix uh, their ass, I would say. I don't know what's happened to Netflix. Netflix, there was a period in which you mm. and I actually had a row about whether or not Netflix was good because there was a period in which Netflix was making all of the best telly. And I would mm. say it was about a six-month period. Like, it had Glow, which was amazing. It yeah, had, I like Glow. 
it had a tremendous series of BoJack Horseman. I mean, they all are, but but it was brilliant. It was making Mindhunter. It made Godless. It made that great drama um, with Caitlin Davis. Unbelievable, was it called? Yeah. And now it just seems to make stuff for tweens, I think. Yeah. Or, or young adult stuff. Those uh, Arthurian kind of sort of Game of Thrones for kids stuff, don't they? Seems yeah, or like. high school sort of drama type yeah. stuff. Yeah, I don't know what's happened to Netflix. It's it's gone down in my estimations quite enormously in in since lockdown basically it's when it happened. Yes. And it's become really bogged down in true crime documentaries. Yeah, I'm I'm not a I'm not a fan. I think you can make a brilliant true crime documentary like Lisa Williams one about the Yorkshire Ripper a couple of years yes. ago about sort of why it wasn't about the Yorkshire Ripper, it was about the police basically and how they completely fucked up that investigation yeah. and it was tremendous but i've no interest in in dead bodies and sort of no. reconstructions of women's last moments i find a lot of that and i've no interest in like trying to incriminate people <laughs> those sort yeah, of, hey, of let's flims. Even, yeah a- encouraging people to actually speculate on yeah. whether these people out of court whether these people might be the murderer of someone i find that all a bit yeah troubling. no i just watched the white lotus as well which is brilliant that oh was i loved there, it. Wasn't it yeah, yeah. I loved, in fact i was telling mickey i think it really i mean i love steve zahn and i love connie Britton, but i think yeah. it's totally the jennifer coolidge show that <laughs> oh, the she's scene amazing, where yeah. she's in that counseling it's not counseling but <laughs> she's in there and she says uh like they're talking about peeling back the onions and she said yeah. the trouble is when i peel all my layers back in the middle there's just a depressed alcoholic <laughs> She said, why do I have to do it slowly? Why can't we just cut to the crazy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. She's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I thought White Lotus was very, very good. Yeah, yeah. that was great. Okay, well, we love, the, we love the HBO on the show. We do. So I promised you at the top that I had a little bit from the interview with Matthew Leach, and here it is, an anecdote about being out on the lash with Bill Garnier. You heard me. We got a letter from HBO saying, yeah, there's going to be this premiere and stuff. That's great. And, you know, everyone's going to be there. and There's going to be parades and all sorts of stuff. But what they also said was, but what we're going to do is, I've decided it, we're going to put you in the Boulevard Hauptmann in some big hotel with all the veterans and all the veteran families, and you can just get drunk for a week. <laughs> and we got the bill. That was awesome. Personally speaking, my bar bill was three thousand euros. Thank you very much. Good work. Mine was on the lower scale of things, and I've never worked for HBO again. <laughs> I think mine was quite low. Yeah, so it was that type of week. Um, it was just great. We were just hanging out with the veterans. Just, it, just the stories were getting ruder and ruder and ruder. <laughs> but I don't think Bill Garnier slept for a week. I don't think he left the bar for a week. Like I would, you just kind of flit in and out. Like you know, I'm going to bed. Or I'm going to have, have some breakfast, and he's still there, built a little pal now, vodka like this, holding court. And then he slept for a week. They just got on the smash for a whole week. It was fantastic. <laughs> You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch, which is written, produced, and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub. You can follow us on Twitter at Make Me Watch Pod. Or you can follow Paul, where he is, at P.R. Kirkley. The rest of the time, he can be found on the pages of Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things. 
among several other things. He's also written two books about Doctor Who, what they called, mate. They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. <laughs> yeah, two helmets. <laughs> and you can find hannah on twitter at that dunleavy or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the standard issue podcast thanks for listening